you know, what I want to know is is how how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to him. The whole drive back from New Mexico, I kept thinking about what Black Crow Walking had said, these mountains being the oldest in the world. They pull you here to do your work, and they will not release you until your work is done. Well, that kept running through my mind as I was driving back this long drive on Interstate 40, is that why I'm being pulled back to North Carolina? Is there there more work to be done? Like, what is it? Why am I being so pulled back? It It was such a strong pull, just like the pull when I originally felt like if I didn't move from Atlanta, I felt like I was going to die. It was that intense. And so I made it all the way back to Madison County, to the little cottage in the woods. And I remember opening the door. And when I walked in, I saw this little piece of fabric in the floor. And there was this kind of oatmeal colored Berber carpet, but there was a little shred of fabric had red and green and blue in it. It it was flannel and it looked like a piece of material that possibly came off of one of my shirts. And I kept seeing these little shreds of fabric and things on the carpet. And the more I kept looking around, I was like, what is, what are these little pieces of stuff? Well, I kept looking and all of a sudden I saw other things on the kitchen counters. Bottom line, I had been invaded by mice. I had been gone for over a month. And apparently by being there and living there with the two dogs, I never knew there was a mouse or even an opening. Well, oh my God. I thought, is this why I had to come home? And I'm like going through my clothes. Oh my God. It was just horrendous. So I end up taking everything out into the front of the yard and just cleaning and bleaching. I mean, I was so grossed out. I couldn't believe it. And I told my landlord people, and they were like, well, we'll get on it and all that. But God, and I was just, you know, I went back into another depression thinking, what? Please, please tell me, what am I supposed to do with this? So when in doubt, you know, I go back into AA because I'd gotten I'd gotten pretty much back into AA out there in New Mexico, so I started going back in Asheville some, and I met this young guy named Daniel, and he was bipolar, and he just could not stay sober. He was a gay guy, and 
he looked like that uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates. He looked like the little shorter one with the black hair and the black mustache. He kind of favored that guy. And he was cute and really funny, funny. Uh, and he told me up front that he was bipolar. And, you know, we'd gone and had coffee and kind of hung out a little bit. And and so he said, oh, I'd love to work with you if you ever have an opportunity. You know, I'd love to work with you. And and so um, he, he told me one day, he says, I got this phone number from these people. I was at a meeting and this man and woman, and they do gardening and blah, blah, blah. But they need, uh, they have a client that came into this uh, garden shop and looking for a stone person. And so he at, the, at this AA meeting, he tells this couple, oh, I know somebody that can do the work. And so he gets the potential client phone number from these two gardener people. And he comes to me and he has this phone number. And I said, Daniel, I don't cold call people. He goes, yeah, but they need stone work. I said, yeah, but I don't. I'm not going to cold call people. It's it's kind of inappropriate because you can hear something through somebody. But, you know, it's just not really etiquette to, to cold call. Hey, I hear you need work. And he said, come on, you really need to call them. And we were driving in North Asheville and he grabbed my phone and he called the number and I go, don't. And he put it on speakerphone. Well, this man answers, hello. And he goes, yes, um, I was calling. Uh, I had a friend that gave me your phone number that uh, we, we do stonework. And he starts babbling on. And the man on the other end goes, let me get my wife and puts the woman on the phone. And he says, yeah, we're just, you know, we were close by. I think where y'all live. And she says, oh, uh uh, okay, well, yeah, and gives the address and says, come on by, we're here. And he hangs up the phone. He goes, see? And I go, oh, God. I said, Daniel, that, and I really, I was kind of pissed off, but I thought, okay, we'll go up there. So we go up to this house, and it's kind of high elevation, and we get up there, and this man and woman come out, and attractive older man and older woman, mid-60s, they weren't that old, but, you know, they had retired and they had just moved from Georgetown, uh, D.C., and they needed some work, and they had a lot of work. It was a lot of stone work. They wanted to reroute the driveway. I mean, they had some stuff. So I gave them prices, and they hired me. And I ended up bringing the guy, the red-headed guy with the, the red handlebar mustache with the mean face from Madison County. I ended up getting him to come down, and we did this huge boulder retaining wall and moved the driveway and pretty big chunk of work. And anyway, she had me do other stuff. And so one day, it was really, really cold when I was out there working, and I was by myself, and she came to the door, and she said, why don't you bring your lunch in here? I was sitting on my tailgate eating my lunch, and I said, no, it's okay, I'm muddy. She goes, I insist that you come into my house, and I said, no, no, it's really okay. She goes, get in the house, so I've got my blue cooler and my stuff, and I said, I'm really dirty. She said, just take your boots off. So I took my boots off. I came in, and her house was just beautiful, and oh, my God, I just, you know, felt so uncomfortable, but we went through the, the living room and went into this little kitchen area, and she had this little nook and a bay window. She just, just sit down, eat, eat right there. It's fine. And she was standing in the kitchen and we get to talking and, you know, start learning her history. And she had been a historian in the White House for 30 years. She'd been in the Smithsonian. She had this history. And she was fascinating. And I just sat and I listened to her. And she talked about when she was in college and, and how she had gone to pick up... Uh, Truman the Capote at the airport to bring him to her college and she had to drive him and she got to talk to him and meet him and she was a writer and, and she met her future husband in college and then he was handpicked by Ralph Nader to come to DC as an attorney and 
she had this life. She had this really rich, important life. I mean, looking through my lens, it looked very important. And she was doing some important work in our country. And so I listened to her in awe. And then she went on to tell me that at 40, her husband had this brain tumor and he only lived maybe a not, I don't even think a year after he was diagnosed and he died and they had one son and she told me of how it sent her into a spiral of depression and she could still go to work, but then she began to drink and she was a very logical person. And then she told me about how, what to what do people do when they have to stop drinking? I guess they go to AA and she tells me this story. And she went to AA for one year, and they told her to, you know, you get a sponsor. She did everything they told her. So when the one year came, she got her one-year chip, and that was it. And she never had another drink, and she never went back. And she was one of those kind of people that could make up her mind and just do something. I think she had a lot of discipline, but she had two poodles, two black poodles, and they were very sweet. And so then I, you know, I told her a little bit of my story. It's so long and convoluted. There's no way I could tell her. But, but you know, we touched on this alcohol thing and depression. And as we talked, she turned to me. She was washing a dish. And she looked at me and she goes, you know, my dear, we would have never run in the same circles. But I find you fascinating, and I feel very connected to you. And I just busted out laughing, and I said, Well, girlfriend, you sure wouldn't have been in my circles. And we had a good laugh about it. But I knew that she was going to become my friend. I really had a sense that this woman and I are going to be friends. And we did become friends, and I continued doing a lot of work for her. And I felt like I could tell her anything. And I felt like she didn't judge me. And so that started a friendship that I was very content and happy to have. I felt like, you know, there are a few people on this planet that feel like anchor souls. They feel like people that when you're around them, that you get grounded and connected and, and that was how I felt about her, and I think she felt that way about me. When the meantime, going, you know, to the AA here and there, and, and then having this little guy be my friend, Daniel, he had found another person that needed some work. I mean, he was like a little networker, and I guess he needed work, so he was trying to push it, because I, I was totally referral. I, I was kind of on the lowdown, but he found this other client, and it was a woman and man, and they were building this McMansion, and it was their dream house, and they had this only child that they had, I guess, in vitro, and but they were very... I don't know. There was something about their situation that kind of didn't feel right to me. And I went into the situation and it was kind of like when people get a lot of money and they start to just overkill. Like, like it's like putting layer after layer after layer of paint over a wall. Like you're never satisfied. So there's a continual glamming it up and and you know she wanted this big fountain on the front porch and she wanted all this just wanted 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 it was like this want I want this and the husband was some attorney and he was pretty absent I think he was just making the big bucks and she was spending it as fast as it could come in and so it just felt kind of off to me, but I, you know, I showed up and I started building this fountain and doing what she wanted. And, and then she, they had this other house that they were trying to sell or get ready to sell. And she asked me if I would come and help her kind of organize and went into the situation. And I realized that, you know, it was almost like a, a hoarding mentality. And this place was just a, 
a wreck and I helped her try to sort through things. And every time I would try to make a pile of things to, to get rid of or to give to charity or what have you, it was like, no, no, no. It was such resistance and, I mean, crazy stuff, like a wrapper to something, a piece of trash. It'd be like, oh, no, that was my little girl's blah, blah, blah. You know, just hanging on to every little thing, and it was about to drive me crazy. This whole situation was getting a little bit uncomfortable, and I couldn't pinpoint it. I couldn't understand why I felt uncomfortable. You know, She asked me to dinner, and, and he was going to join us there, so we went to this little weird restaurant, and we sat, and the husband seemed very preoccupied, and he would kind of come in on the conversation like he was almost dissociated. Then he'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was not into it at all, and I I finished the job and but it was it was really hard to work at this person's house. She was very uh nitpicky about things that the average person would not ever, ever think about and she would walk up to what I was doing on this rock wall and it was the the wall was actually on the front porch and it was kind of an Italian type fountain I was doing and she would pick out these little spaces like the size of a dime and say, I don't that little space is bothering me. And I started realizing, you know, I'd met people like this in my life that had this brain that they would nitpick certain things, but then their other life is in shambles. Like they're living in squalor, but they're picking out these imperfections. It was very strange. So one night out at the cottage, it was very late and I got a phone call and it was her and she was sobbing. And I said, what is, what's the matter? You know, what's wrong? And what, what seems to happen across the board is like when I work for people, a lot of times, you know, they want to be friends and, and there's a fine line. You have to keep your professionalism because, you know, you're working for them and they're paying you and you can't get too close. And so I try to keep that boundary, but you know, she called and she was crying and I'm like, what's wrong? And goes on to tell me that, you know, the husband came in and he said, I don't love you. I've been cheating on you for 12 years. Oh, my God. Oh, it was just devastating for this person. And I felt so horrible for her. And, you know, but I guess what it showed me was that it just doesn't matter you know, I mean, we organize our lives to hide the fact that we don't make any difference in the world, basically. You know, most of us have organized our lives around hiding them. It's like, let's, let's just hide what's real and let's put this other stuff out there. Being cool like, you know, and even in my own life, my own facade, my own persona, you know, I always wanted to be cool. What the fuck is cool? You know, cool is the emotional straitjacket. You know, you want to be confined inside of yourself? Well, work on being cool because it will keep you locked down. I just... So many lessons were flooding into my life. And I just, you know, I had to try to help this person the best that I could and keep a boundary. So I felt very sad about their situation and this whole house and all this work they'd done and the millions of dollars. And here I am living out there on the shoestring, basically, and I'm worried about this all the zeros over there, bless their hearts. See, there's, a, there's, there's resentment in there too. See, I have resentment because I hear these high-class problems and the high-class money problems and, oh, we've spent a fortune on these, you know, Brazilian riverbed granite countertops. 
what the fuck? I'm so sorry. I got fucking mice chewing my clothes up over here in on uh, Glory Lane or whatever the fuck that road was I was living on. But that resentment, see, that resentment that doesn't that doesn't do anything to enlighten myself or my life. So I was getting these little weird jobs because living off the grid almost. It was just a word-of-mouth thing. So I get this call, and I go into North Asheville to this one house. And, you know, it was this young couple. They just bought a house, and they wanted to clear out the back of the, um, down kind of in the woods. And there was this rock wall, and it was probably two and a half feet high. And you kind of had to go over the rock wall down the hill. And they wanted me to chainsaw a bunch of trees, not big, it wasn't real big stuff, you know, maybe four to five inches in diameter, just, so, you know, I gave them a price, and I said, okay, I'll come do this, and what have you, it was just going to be some extra money, so I go down there, and uh, I start working, well, I had my little and Lulu, I had them, and I just tied them to a tree, and they had their long leashes, and they were sitting there, and I'm chainsawing, and they were far enough away that I'm not, no, they weren't in danger. Well, it had been raining, and my foot slipped, and I thought, ooh, God, I better be careful. Well, then the next time my foot slipped again and I started sliding down this hill and the chainsaw was running, all I could think was I gotta get I gotta get away from the chainsaw. I threw the chainsaw and when I did, it bounced on the ground and it came back up in the air and the chainsaw blade went right through my wrist. I had on these big leather gloves. Well, it cut through the glove down to my wrist. And I saw blood shoot up out of my wrist like a fountain. Kind of like it came out of Dave's head the night he broke the vodka bottle over his head. The blood shot out and all I could do was stick my thumb in this hole in my wrist and I'm like, Jesus, oh my God, what the fuck? So I look at the dogs and I'm like, okay, y'all, stay here. I, 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 I couldn't really think. And I started going up this hill where I had to climb over this wall because I have my thumb in my wrist in this hole because it's gushing blood. And I get myself over this wall well, I go to the house that I was working at, and the people, they weren't there, but they had this man there who was a cabinet maker, and I went to the side door, and I started kicking the door, and he was an older gentleman, and he saw me, and he came over to the door, and I said, um, and I didn't want to alarm him, but I said, do you think you could call 911? I said, I, I just cut my wrist with a chainsaw. Well, he kind of went pale. I mean, and he couldn't unlock the door. It needed a key. He couldn't. He goes, meet me around front. Well, by the time I made it to the front yard, he came out and was coming toward me. And I went to my knees. I dropped to my knees and I kept holding this, my thumb in this hole. Well, I almost passed out. And I kind of just stayed right there, and he talked to me. And next thing I know, I'm in an ambulance, and here I go. And the whole time, I'm like, please, I've got to get somebody to get my dogs. My, my main concern was my dogs. I was just in a panic about these dogs. And so I went on, and I got to the hospital. They got me in there. I had sawdust all over me, and... They take me into this room, and I'll never forget this. I thought this was very weird. They laid this pad down on my leg, and they laid my wrist down, and my wrist is just pumping blood. Like, it's just coming out of my arm, and I'm watching it. And it's 
covering this, and it looked like one of those pads you put down for a puppy. And the blood's just pumping all over this pad. And they left me in the room, and nobody was in there. And I'm just like dizzier and dizzier. And then people would come and peek into the room. And I remember this one lady looked in on me, and she goes, Oh, are you the one that cut your wrist with a chainsaw? And I looked at her and I go, not on fucking purpose, God. And finally, you know, they sent somebody in and they they kind of put a clip on it for a minute. And then they sent this woman in and she was wearing a dress. And I thought, oh, she must be coming about insurance. And she comes in and she sits over in the corner and she starts talking to me very kind and and I thought, oh my God, this is a psychological evaluation. And sure enough, I guess they have to do this. I mean, and I laughed and I go, are you trying to see if I cut my wrist with a chainsaw on purpose? Oh no, no, I'm just, you know, checking in with you. So I just sat and I listened to her and I asked her, I thought, okay, we're going to, I'm going to work on her for a minute. So I asked her if she liked her job and what she liked about it and then what other kind of hobbies. The next thing I know, she's like, well, I really love playing the piano. And I play the piano at the Grove Park Inn part time. And that's what I would really like to do. And that's my passion. So we go on and on. And I start telling her about passion and following your dream. Right. Well, honey. She finally gets up and she looks at me and she goes, you have really inspired me. I I really am going to think about maybe going into my piano playing full time. Thank you so much. (laughs) And she walks out and I'm sitting in there and blood's oozing out of this like clip. And I'm thinking, well, all right. I don't know what that was about, but maybe once again, I was a fucking catalyst for the fucking piano social worker lady. I don't know. Well, as I'm sitting there, my ghetto phone rings. Not many people had this number. And I answer it. And it was this man's voice. And he says, hello, is this Jill? And I said, yes. And he says... My name is Bill, and I was calling to let you know that you've won a healing session. And I just cracked up. I have never heard of this person in my life. And I said, how? Where? And he just kind of stumbled. I said, I am sitting in the emergency room with my wrist pumping blood out of my body. Uh, I could use a healing session. And I just laughed. And I thought, how fucking weird is this? I said, how'd you get my number? He says, your name was in a drawing. I said, what kind of drawing? Some fucking woo-woo metaphysical thing that they had had at the Asheville Civic Center. Apparently, somebody had put my name and number in some jar with this guy. And I'm like, okay, universe, are you joking? So I told him, I said, sure, why not? You know, here it comes. Put me down. I'll come over there once they patch me up. Well, finally, you know, they get me all sewn up and get everything fixed and put the big cast or whatever they had to wrap me up and now I'm just oh my god I can't work and I had to I called this girl that I had met from AA and she was kind of in and out and so she she had actually gone and put my dogs in my truck that was not locked, thank goodness. And she just put them in there. And then she came to the hospital and got me and then took me to get my vehicle. And I was very appreciative for that. And the dogs were okay. And so we go home. And so then, of course, you know, Gene Pool's calling, like, you got to come to this social event. It's a social event. It's, just, it's always about the social event. And now that I can't work, I was like, well, I'll just go with you because I'm, you know, because I'm bored pretty much. So I go to this thing and we were hanging out and I noticed this woman that came in 
And I had seen her at a lot of the AA meetings. And she was in her mid-50s, I'd say, and she was a psychologist. I knew that much about her. And she had about, you know, 25 years of sobriety. And when she talked at the meetings, I really liked her. And she was very funny. She had a really witty, witty sense of humor. She had sort of a northern accent. And so she walked by me and she saw my wrist all, you know, wrapped up and stuff. And she said, what happened to your wrist? What happened to your arm? And I said, I cut my wrist with chainsaw. And she just busted out laughing. And so there was a little spark there. There was something about her. Sometimes I think when a person is distant from you, it like makes you want to know them more. And she sort of giggled and laughed and walked on. Well, I started kind of talking to her. And then, you know, the next thing I know, I'd see her again. And so we kind of struck up a little friendship. uh, And I started kind of pursuing her. There was something about her that was very intriguing to me. Uh, I'd seen some pictures of her when she was younger, and she looked like the actress Chloe Sevigny. She had had long blonde hair, and and now you know it was with gray. And she she had aged, but she was one of those kind of people that ages too quickly because of their language. She constantly talked about being old, and she was only fifty six. And I go, why do you always say you're so old? You're not that old. And so it was a really interesting kind of relationship. I I won't even really call it much of a relationship, but I was really taken by her, her intellect. She was very smart and her brain was fast. And there's something about that that really excites me in a person Um, she had this brain that just processed very quickly and very witty. And I just really liked being around her and talking with her and having conversations with her. There's just something very stimulating about a person that can, can go there and think deeply about things in life. And actually I had told her a story and I just made it up. I made up a story about, you know, we were. she was talking about how you can put anything on the street and this guy comes by and gets it. And I made up this whole story about a piddler, a man that's a piddler. And I went into this long, long fucking made up story and she just died laughing. And she was like, you really should be a storyteller. And this was the very first time that I really got an inkling that I that I was a storyteller. And she she told me that I was very good at it and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I guess I got a bunch of stories. And But anyway, so this little relationship was, I don't know, it was sort of strange and it didn't really get too far because one day, you know, we were going to go to this festival and she invited me over to her house and she had this pit bull dog mix. And It was a female dog named Molly, and I had brought my dog. She goes, well, bring your dogs on in the fence, and we were sitting on her deck before we were going to go to this festival, and we were just talking, and my little white dog, Little, he jumped into my lap, and he was sitting in my lap, and the pit bull, she started coming over sort of the, the left of my knees, Well, my little dog, he was a little bit skittish. Now, this is the one that was taken way too early from its Pekingese mother at the puppy mill years ago. Well, he turns and he kind of did his lip. You know how the little dog, their lip goes up and that tooth shows? He kind of showed his tooth. Well, the next thing I know, that pit bull mix grabbed my dog out of my lap and they started a rumble. And I'm talking, it was like something you would see in the cartoons. They're tumbling and rumbling and fighting and growling and biting. And oh my God. Well, she starts screaming. The psychotherapist starts screaming bloody murder. And my other little dog, Lulu, she starts running over there 
and going after the pit bull trying to take up for Little. Well, this pit bull throws Little to the side who's bleeding, who has these puncture marks, and this dog grabs the Shih Tzu's head in her mouth. And she starts swinging back and forth as to break the Shih Tzu's neck is what it's looking like. Well, it was as if a woman's voice whispered in my ear, she's going to kill your dog. And it was so clear, this voice, she's going to kill your dog. Well, about that time, I rose up and I screamed. I had a wailing sound come out of me that I have never, ever heard or attempted. It was the most primal noise. Well, that pit bull dropped Lulu and that dog put her chin down on the deck and laid flat and just looked up at me. Well, I started whispering to the psychotherapist. I said, can you please get my dogs and put them in my truck? And I started petting the pit bull's head. And I said, it's okay. It's okay. You're a good girl. You're a good girl. And I just petted the dog. And as I was petting this frantic psychologist, she's just freaking out because she's a nervous Nelly anyway and very scared of everything. I mean, scared of gloom and doom of the universe. I mean, just scared in general. So she gets my dogs and puts them in the truck. And I'm petting her dog and I'm like trying to calm the dog, which it was okay. And finally, you know, she gets her dog and takes her and puts her in this crate and that pretty much ended that relationship. And the next thing I know, she's calling me and she's taking her dog to all these dog psychologists and all these different professionals. And she ends up putting her dog to sleep, you know, saying once the dog gets a taste of blood, then there'll be a killer forever. And oh, my God. And no wonder if a child comes up to the fence and it bites a child or it mauls a child. And I mean, all this stuff is true, but it's also just a crazy Oh, my God. And so life goes on, and I'm just kind of like, you know, what else is on the docket? I think when, you're, when your nervous system is just so affected on a daily and weekly basis by experiences, you know, you just kind of get used to it. There's there's something about it. You, you just kind of know that right around the corner, there's going to be another adventure, you know. And I remember that quote uh, Helen Keller said that if that life is either a dairy and adventure or nothing. And for most people, it's nothing. Well, I knew my life was a dairy and adventure. And I can't say that it was real fun but I knew that it was a daring adventure on a daily basis. So one day I'm over there working at the, the lady from the White House. And we had really struck a friendship. And she gave me a whole bunch of work. And I was really starting to take to stone. I was really starting to have a relationship with stone walls and, and ancient wall building and the Peruvians and, and just, you know the Mayans, and I just really got into this, and there was something about building stone walls that when you really get in it, the the you in you kind of disappears. You know, the I, whoever I am, kind of disappears, and you don't really have anything going on in your mind except just being in that present moment. So there's something very therapeutic about it. And some people call it getting in the zone. That sounds so fucking cliche. 
but it kind of is, you know, you kind of get in this places. And I know that there's a lot of people that garden. I've watched women over the years, especially women, that really get addicted to gardening. And I think a lot of that has to do with that quote unquote zone. And so when I was working for my friend, the White House lady, she had me do this huge, huge staircase. It was a very steep incline. And I dug into the hill, kind of like a Lord of the Rings staircase is what I called it. And it was lined with walls. And it took me a pretty long time to do this job. But it really was satisfying psychologically. Physically, it's fucking hard as hell. That's the thing. Physically, it's the most exerting thing that you can imagine. I'm not exaggerating. If you ever doubt it, just come with me for one hour I won't even say a day, because most people can't make it through a day. But I found that this work, there was something that was feeding me peace. It was feeding me contentment, even though it is the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. And so the addiction to the presence the addiction to finding that place is sort of like runner's high. You know, when back when I was a runner and I would go run, you know, the 15 miles, I remember getting to the seven mile point and something shifts because at seven, you're still in pain and you're gasping and you're like, oh God, can I do it? But then something happens and something kicks in and this this high begins to happen. And I guess it's the serotonin and the dopamine and all of that natural stuff that can happen inside of yourself. And I felt like that would kick into me when I'm building walls. Well, this one particular day, I get this call and I was at her house and this man, he says, uh, yeah, I got your number from blah, 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 and I'm down here in Fairview, and I'd like you to come look. I've got a whole bunch of stuff I want you to, to do and stone. And and so I said, okay, and I went out to this house, and I drive up, and I look down the driveway, and there's this man, and I swear he looks like Tarzan. He had on a pair of running shorts short shorts and that was it and he was washing this silver mercedes convertible and he had this blonde hair and he had this huge chest and he was just drop dead gorgeous tarzan right there in the driveway what the fuck who is this so I go down there and I introduce myself and he tells me his name and I wish I could say it, but I won't because it's the perfect name for this person. And he's an adventure racer. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? And he's, you know, swimming, running, cycling in Australia and all over the world. Just larger than life personality. And so kind and down to earth and funny and so he shows me his plans and what he wants to do and he wants an outdoor shower and a fire pit and all these boulders and lots and lots of work and it was a really good opportunity and so we struck up a deal and I began to work for him when the process I had gone to this person that had called me when I was back in the emergency room and I go to this man's house this healer guy I had no idea what I was walking into on that one and it was like an old blue farmhouse and I go to the door and he comes to the door and he opens the door and he looks like William Hurt he really looked like William Hurt which almost makes me laugh because I'm like what the fuck with the celebrities Seems like everybody I meet, every stranger, there's some affiliation with some celebrity. But anyway, he goes, hi, I'm Bill. And I go, well, hi, I'm Jill. So I have no clue who this is. I mean, he could have just killed me in, this, uh, in his house. 
But he invites me in the house. I go in, and he's behind me, and he says you can go up these steps. And it was those kind of steps that have been put in to go to an attic. And, you know, they're super, like, weird and steep and narrow. So we go up this creaking, weird, old staircase. He's behind me because he's being a gentleman, whatever. And I'm like, oh, God. So I go into this room, and there's this massage table. And it's one of those, like, attic, you know, where the ceiling's kind of slanted, like you could hit your head on it, and it's all wood, and you could smell the cedar in the room. And I guess he had done the paneling in there with cedar siding, and it had sort of that smell, and it was okay. And he he said, just go ahead and sit down on the table. And he sat in a chair, and we kind of talked for a minute. I didn't give him a whole lot of information he didn't give me a lot of information. He said, just get on the table and lay down and close your eyes. Well, that's what I did. And I closed my eyes. And this man started walking around me. I could feel him around me, but he never touched me. He never laid a hand on me. But I could feel air as if he was fanning or moving something. But I wouldn't open my eyes. I'm like, nope, I'm going to follow directions. I'm not going to open my eyes. I'm just going to do what he tells me. Well, the next thing I know, I go into this deep, deep place. I can't even tell you that I was asleep because it didn't feel like I was asleep. But I was somewhere and I had this vision of a symbol, and it was the what I know now to be the Egyptian symbol, the Ankh or whatever. It sort of looks like the feminine power symbol. I saw that in my mind's eye. And a few other strange things. And so, I mean, this hour flew by. And then he says, you know, you can open your eyes. And when I opened my eyes and I sat up, I was more relaxed than any massage that I had ever had in my life. And I had had a lot of massages through the years. But whatever this was, I had never experienced anything like this. So he gives me this book called The Reconnection by Dr. Eric Pearl, who was a chiropractor out in California. He says, I was trained with this guy. And if you're interested in learning more about what I do, you can read this book. And so I was very taken by this. And I continued seeing this man every week. Well, during this time, I started working for Tarzan down there in Fairview. And I called my good old buddy Tina down from D.C. I said, can you come help me? This is a big job. I really need some help. And, and so there we're working. It's midsummer by now, and, and it was pretty hot. And so there was a festival downtown Asheville. There's always a fucking festival going on in Asheville. I think it's like a 24-7 kind of situation, you know. I remember the first time I went into the grocery store Earth Fair it was a Wednesday at 1.30 in the afternoon, and I was on the phone with a friend from Atlanta that was still in the city life, and I was walking in, and as I was on the phone, I said, this is the weirdest place, and she said, why? And I said, well, there's a flute player sitting out front. There's a bunch of cages with a bunch of kittens and cats. There's a person laying on the ground getting like cranial sacral work. There's a person reading tarot cards, and there's an earring maker all at the entrance of the fucking grocery store. And my friend is cracking up, and I said, 
I said, it's like a fucking festival every day. And then you walk into Earth Fair and there's like these young mothers with their baby papooses on the front of themselves in a swaddling wrap. And they've got about $700 worth of fucking groceries in their buggy. I mean, I can't afford to buy hardly anything in Earth Fair at that point. And I'm thinking, where do they get the money like, where do all these young, like, hippie kind of people have all this dough? I just, I couldn't understand it. It was kind of blowing my mind. Well, anyway, my friend Tina comes, and we go to this festival, and and we're standing there, and I look across the way, and there was this young girl, woman, late 20s probably, and I said, Tina, see that girl over there, that young woman over there? And she goes, yeah. I said, that's that person I told you about the very first night that I moved to Asheville. She was a server at Carabas, and she looked right through me. Now, this particular person had come to see me in my shop, and I had run into her several times over the past 10 years at this point. And I said, you know, that is my ideal person. And Tina's laughing and she goes, why do you say that? I said, I don't know. I said, but there's something about her that just drives me crazy. And she says, what, in a bad way or a good way? I said, no, it's like the, it's one of the most intense attractions I think I've ever had in my life. She goes, well, you need to steer clear just knowing your history. Well, about that time, this particular girl, woman, turns around and sees me, and she smiles, and she comes over, and she whispers in my ear, is that your girlfriend? Because Tina is very attractive, and Tina gets a lot of attention, and I said, no. You know, people always think when you're together with somebody that you're together with them. I said, no, it's just my friend. So we kind of chit-chatted for a minute. And then she says, Johanny, why don't you call me and let's have coffee sometime? And I said, okay. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Kadic, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates. <laughs>